This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable! Look, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely and control vehicle at all times. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the result, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. So the only thing left to say is, you in? Order now on the McDonald's app, and you can also get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants, 18 plus. Rewards registration required, points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Hello and welcome to Albion Analysis with me, Chris Hall and him, Pete George. And a, I hope you've all had a very Merry Christmas, those of you that have been celebrating. And it was a very Merry Boxing Day, wasn't it, for Albion? A, a little bit squeaky bum time, but hashtag Albion that, I suppose, is the, is the, uh, is, is the well-known expression. Obviously, Albion up against 10 men. Didn't do it the easy way, but as we will come to see on this pod, we didn't necessarily do it the hard way either. Albion running out 1-0 winners against Norwich after Norwich were taken down to 10 men, or they, or more specifically, they took themselves down to 10 men, I think would be, would be a more accurate way of putting it after an absolutely crazy decision from uh, from from the Norwich player to wave uh, Borgia Saints I think it's pronounced um to after having already been booked wave a imaginary yellow card at the referee we all know the laws we all know it's it, it's a booking it was a stupid decision and he deservedly was was sent off but let's not kid ourselves into thinking that that's the reason Albion won the game Albion were already dominant in the game playing very very well and Pete after we were extremely critical of the performance against Middlesbrough, and rightly so, it was, for me, comfortably the worst display of the season and not befitting of an Albion side that generally keeps itself in, in every game and gives it, it gives itself a big, big chance in every game. I don't think we gave ourselves any real chance against Middlesbrough. The only player that gave us a chance was Alex Palmer by keeping us in it, but we weren't going to score in a month of Sundays in that game. Norwich was the performance that we were crying out for after that abysmal display against against Middlesbrough. It was the performance that that was needed um, for the supporters and to bring a little bit of belief back because we obviously did the numbers around Albion with and without Matt Phillips and it doesn't make for pretty reading. We needed to prove we could play without Matt Phillips and 
I think we did that uh, against Norwich. We came we came out the traps very strongly. We should have been ahead long before we were, long before the sending off. And I think all told, Pete, it was a pretty encouraging display, wasn't it? Yeah, very encouraging. Um, like I say, even before the red card, we Albion were very good. And then we continued after the sending off. So I think it's exactly the kind of performance that we needed after Middlesbrough because that was a, a poor performance and we got outplayed. Um, but it was good to see Albion being the ones to put in the good performance against Norwich and, and outplay them and clearly deserve the victory. Absolutely. And a huge part of that victory was um, I described on, on social media as certain things are just better when they're together, whether it be gin and tonic, whether it be fish and chips, Pete, and adding to that list, I feel, is Swift and Wallace. They, 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 uh, some, somebody, um, somebody sent me a, a, a brilliant um, Max and Paddy uh, reference during the game which, uh, and, and suggested that, um, that, uh, that uh, uh, Swift and Wallace were like Magnet and Steel, which, which I really, uh, as, as a big fan of Phoenix Knights and, uh, and Max and Paddy, I really enjoyed that reference. But, I mean, they are just a wonderful combination. We've seen it so many times, and I know it didn't, result in a goal on uh, on uh, uh, on boxing day but that Wallace run down the right hand side cut back to Swift Swift uh, then try and sweep it into the back of the net I mean how many goals have we scored from that combination I mean it, and it was there from almost day one last season when that brought about the equaliser against Middlesbrough when uh, when the two of them played together for the very first time and that that combination has stayed and stayed and stayed, hasn't it, Pete? And I think when they're at it and they're in their rightful positions, and their rightful positions for me are Swift in the 10, Wallace out on the right-hand side, you almost... Uh, the reason I want to start off by talking about them together is because I think they are so good together in that they're a wonderful combination. And as we all know, you talk to any 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 in the game they will tell you football is all about combinations it doesn't matter whether it's you know going back to the the days of 4-4-2 it used to be center half combinations used to be center midfield combinations the link up between a fullback and a winger and the two center forwards working together it combinations is a huge huge part of football and they just seem to have this wonderful telepathic understanding and there was a little bit of bad luck about John Swift not scoring there was a little bit of poor finishing and he was very critical of himself in the post-match interview he came out and actively thanked Brandon for digging him out of a hole I think is the way he described it I personally think that John Swift is being very harsh on himself there because first of all he was deeply unlucky with the one that hit the post Andy Johnson for one thought it was already in in fact so did, so did John Swift <laughs> if you actually watch the slow motion replay Swift is actually turning away to celebrate as it strikes the post but I thought everything he did around the game was just phenomenal some of the little touches i mean we'll we'll dip into the data in a little bit pete but there's certain things you can't measure in numbers and uh, some of the intricate little flicks around the corner um that i i've i've seen i've seen the memes doing the rounds about are we um swear word brazil and it and it's it was true i mean some some of the stuff that john swift did was was phenomenal and We've missed him. We've missed this John Swift as well, haven't we? Because he hasn't quite looked at, uh, at it over since his return from from injury. After uh, he, obviously before Birmingham and before he was absolutely phenomenal, but he's not really looked at it since he came back into the side. But this was this was vintage John Swift, and in the end, 
Corbran admitted after the game that he had to look after John Swift a little bit. He didn't want to take him off because he felt he was so important to what we were doing. But at the same time, John Swift communicated to the sideline that he was feeling it in his calf. He was feeling fatigue. He was struggling a little bit. And Corbran took a view that it was better to bring him off. But And I do think that was, an, I think that's a massive decision from Corbran. So, so important because we can't lose Swift again. Not, not, not for a you know a big period. We just can't lose him again because he's so massive to what we do f- going forward. He was fantastic, and I think it was the right decision to bring him off, even though we might have got the second with him on the pitch. I think it's more important that we don't lose John Swift for five six weeks because that was the proper John Swift we saw on Boxing Day, wasn't it? I think it was always going to be the case with Wallace's ability to cross and and Swift arriving late in the box and finding space to get shots off. I think they're always going to work well together. And like you said, the first game they played together up at Middlesbrough last season, um, you saw just, and we're starting to see it again, which is really promising. If you look at the people that the players that John Swift passed to, then Jed Wallace was second highest on that list. Um, He passed 15 times to Moat and 11 times to Jed Wallace. So you can see the combination there. And then, even if you look at the players that Swift received, passes off. Um, it's the same again. Wallace is second highest. Swift received 17 passes from Moat and 11 from Jed Wallace. You were them in the penalty box as well um, from crosses. So, well, they're so hard the to pick up, up those late runs into the penalty area that he makes. It, it, I mean, it, it, we, we're a little bit critical of the amount of touches Brandon has in the opposition penalty area on the last pod, but he is easy. It, it's easier to mark a centre forward when a number ten makes that late run into the penalty area, as we saw with Morgan Rogers scoring the goal against us um, for, for Middlesbrough in the last game. It's a nightmare for defenders, isn't it? Yeah, exactly, and that's what we need. Um, a lot of the time, he says we just just Brandon in the box and. There's no chances we're going to be able to get across in and win the header. Um, you need somebody attacking that kind of six-yard box and then your number 10 coming in late on the penalty spot. Maybe your, your wingers moving inside. And I mean, even Grady had a chance from um, doing just that, coming, making a run from from left to right and ending up on the penalty spot. I think it was from another Jed Wallace cross and he, he was unfortunate just to side-foot it wide. But when we're putting crosses into the box, we need players in the box and we need players taking up different positions just to give to give the crosser options and make it harder to defend. And when we've got Jed Wallace crossing it, you know that if you find a bit of space, he's most likely seeing you there and he's going to try and pick you out. Well, let's talk about Jed Wallace's crossing, Pete. Like I say, I'm, I'm bundling Wallace and Swift in together because I just thought they were they were a wonderful, wonderful double act all the way through that game. I thought Swift's intric- intricate little play in, in the middle of the park, I thought it was everything that we've been missing in recent weeks. And, and Wallace's dynamism out on that right-hand side. And you, we were chatting off air before we started recording and, and you you were saying you know it, it's just a different player when he can go out on that right hand touchline and he was fantastic and I think one of the things that we've we, we've said a bit that whilst DK's been injured that we've got a problem with is when when Wallace is out on that right hand side who's he crossing to yet he, he he completed eight crosses on Boxing Day which may not sound that impressive, but it really, really is. Let me put that into perspective as to how impressive that is. There's only been one other game this season where the entire Albion team has completed eight crosses or more. So i.e. they've put a cross in and the first contact has been made by a West Bromwich Albion player. There's only one game all season where 
that has happened that the entire team has completed more crosses and that was Southampton away when we only did we only completed nine anyway Jed Wallace nearly beat that on his own on Boxing Day and it it, it's it's fantastic. The, the delivery, I mean, the delivery for the goal is just it is just awesome. Although I have to say, massive, massive credit to Grady Diangana because he's got no right to win that header against Jack Stacey. Absolutely fantastic from him. But the, the quality of Wallace's delivery, time and time and time again, and they weren't all they weren't all high crosses into the box. Some were little pullbacks, some were low balls across across the penalty area, but they caused Norwich no end of problems and as as we say they were a wonderful double act Swift and Wallace and Swift was feeding him as you've as you've rightly shown Wallace was feeding Swift back but also Wallace was finding other players I mean there was the one that he fizzed across the box where I mean Brandon I think the offside flag was up anyway but he really should make contact with it you know he was finding he was finding other players he's obviously found Grady for the goal I just thought he was. It, it, we really did see the best of Swift and Wallace throughout the Norwich game, and uh, and I know it's a bit of a quandary to you, Pete, that why why Jed Wallace doesn't play that role all the time? Yeah, I don't understand it a lot of the time. Uh, I suppose it it really depends on who you're playing in cover, and so meticulous in analysing opposition and trying to find weaknesses that maybe Wallace only gets used as a, a real right winger whenever. Corbrand sees the weakness of the opposition being dealing with crosses. Um, against Norwich, it was the the second widest he's played all season, and the second highest his average position has been all season. So, but just to say that, Pete, I mean that might have been a tactic from the start because obviously they had Kenny McLean at centre half, who's not a centre half at all. But it's interesting that Wallace kept that position into the second half when they had Duffy, Hanley, and Bart. As three centre halves. I mean, that's not that's not weak from crosses, is it? That's you know that's land of the blooming giants. There was a good variety of crosses as well. It wasn't just whip the ball into between the six yard box and the penalty spot and and hope we win. It was picking out players, making runs. I already mentioned the the ones Dan Garner that was along the floor. Um, obviously, Jed Wallace had his his volley that almost floated into the top corner. Um, it was a variety of crosses. It wasn't just hopelessly whipping them in and, and watch them get headed away by the centre-backs. So I suppose that comes down to the movement of the Albion attackers as well. Um, you know, if, you, if you've if got three big centre-halves in, in the box, they're going to be quite comfortable heading the ball away, but they might not be as comfortable dealing with attacking players moving around and, and finding little pockets of space that they can get picked out by Jed Wallace. Um, and the fact that he had the his second-highest... Um, average position as well, which is probably just because we were dominating Norwich and we had a lot of possession in the final third, but it meant that he was doing a lot of work high up the pitch and, and maybe wasn't having to get involved in build-up as much. He could focus his efforts into, into creating the space to, to get the cross in and then picking players out with the cross as well. So I think we always get a, a really good performance when Wallace is out wide right, where he's most natural. Um, and that's where I just wonder why why we don't use him out there a bit more often this season. Absolutely. And just coming back to John Swift for a moment, though, Pete, I mean, because you mentioned it there, that that little chip, I mean, if that goes in, that that really is a big, big contender for, for goal of the season, isn't it? I mean, what what an impudent, clever, 
little attempt at a, at a finish. I mean, the the one where he's he's sort of reversed it onto the post is a great effort, but the chip in the second half is phenomenal. Yeah, and it, it really looked like a player that was playing with enjoyment as well. And you should love to see players attempt those kind of things because um, yeah, it's just you know off the cuff, and that's what that's what you want to see from those kind of players. We've got. I mean, John Swift's probably the best example, but he's just a brilliant player that has got the ability to do that and just kind of... Well, and the, and the shot from the short free kick as, as well, Pete. I, I forgot to mention that, but I mean, he's so far out. He's got no right to test the keeper from there, has he? No, and it was a, quite a smart routine as well because, you know, you, we just basically worked it forward another six or seven yards to make it within what you could consider shooting distance. Um, it was a, a decent shot and he worked the keeper... Could have been a little bit better, but I mean, it's good to see us taking those kind of things on. And it's quite interesting looking at the shot maps for each half because in the first half we got quite a, I think we probably got seven or eight shots from outside the box. Um, but then into the second half, they were all but one were from inside the penalty area. Well, they defended so deep, didn't they? Second half. I mean, I uh, I just I just looked at uh, looked at the uh, the numbers, Pete. In term, I mean, this is how dominant we were. In terms of our completed passes, we completed uh, we completed two hundred and ninety two passes in that second half. Two hundred and twenty six of them we completed inside the Norwich half. I mean, that's ridiculous. Yeah, and you know we always talk about um, field tilt over possession, and because it just takes into consideration where those passes are being completed. It only considers passes in the attacking third of the team with possession. Um, and Albion had a sort of 88% against Norwich so that just shows just how dominant we were we were the ball spent almost all the time in the Norwich well the Norwich defensive third the Albion attacking third and it was just yeah complete dominance um, and I know, you, know you're going to talk about it in a bit but as well as having that dominance to keep the ball in the attacking third we were also set up really well with our rest defence in a way that we just didn't concede any counter attacks um, while scout actually counts how many counter attacks there are each game and um against Norwich Albion didn't concede any so we controlled the ball in their their half um but also controlled the the game if in case we ever did lose the ball well now, as you mentioned it Pete we'll we'll come to that i mean because i was i was listening to Corbrand's comments after the game and it was interesting he said he said that you know cuz Jez asked him about basically playing against a team that's dropped in deep and how difficult they can be to break down. You know, the, um, uh, very much uh, the, the, the sensible questions to ask after you've just played you know, played 10 men who had 10 men for nearly an hour. And uh, Cornbrand said, yeah, yeah, look, from an offensive point of view, you're absolutely right. But then he flipped it on Jez and he said, but let's talk about this from a defensive point of view. It's also important that there's two real ways that the, that the opposition are going to be able to hurt you in that situation and those are set pieces and they are counter-attacks and as you say Pete I don't it's important to not take it for granted that just because they went down to 10 men that that we were going to dominate the game I mean I was I was stood in stood in the concourse before the match watching uh, watching Leeds with 10 men get an equaliser against Preston before Preston scored a brilliant goal to to finally uh, finally beat them you know that um that I remember last weekend, just because I'm I'm a bit of a bit of a geek and I pay attention to all the EFL leagues, I I, I saw um, Cheltenham play the vast majority of the game at Leighton Orient with with ten men and, and go one nil up. And there's it, whilst 
in the end, Cheltenham got beat. There's nothing. There's nothing to say. I mean, look at look at Forest. How much of a game they they gave it after Willie Bolly was sent off the the other the, the other day. There's nothing. There's no guarantees. Just because the opposition go down to ten men, there's absolutely no guarantees, and there's nothing to stop them hurting you. They're just going to be. They're, they're going to be light in a certain area. That's just the nature of it. They've got a player less, so they're going to be light somewhere around the pitch. But it's not to say that teams can't hurt you. And Norwich are a good offensive team. And, you know, towards the end of the game, threw a lot of, threw a lot of attacking players at us as well. Yet we didn't concede a single counter-attack. And the only, they only had one shot on goal, which is, which is the wonderful Alex Palmer save, which we will come to. They only had one shot on goal in the second half. So... We didn't really concede anything to them other than that incident came from Semi making a mistake. He He's put the ball out for a throw in when he doesn't need to. He can clear it up the pitch. The throw in comes in. They win a corner from the throw in and the corner comes in. And or maybe they win a free kick, one of the two. Anyway, they win a set play after the throw in and the ball comes in. The lad wins the header and... Alex Palmer makes an absolutely phenomenal save, which we will talk about in a little bit more depth in a moment. But I think it, you know it was interesting Corbrand's comments after the game because uh, because like I say, Jez very much asked from from the attacking point of view. But it was interesting that Corbrand wanted to talk about the defensive element because I think there's probably probably the reason he wanted to was because. People take it for granted that you can defend against a team that has 10 men. And there's absolutely no evidence to say that that's the case. Because as I say, I've just given you, uh, I've just given you three, uh, three incidents in, in the last week or so of teams who have, who have scored goals whilst down to 10 men in a game. Whether they go on to win the game or not is irrelevant. But the point is they can hurt teams. And I think Corbran was in, uh, at pains to point out that we were well set up defensively to make sure Norwich didn't hurt us. We we allowed them one moment, one moment in the whole second half. And we were very thankful to have a very good goalkeeper when that moment came. But nonetheless, to allow only one moment in the whole of that second half shows how intelligently we've played it, how dominant we were. Yes, ideally, we would have got the second goal and settled everybody down. And I think the second goal would have killed the game stone dead. I don't think there's any any two ways about that. But I think you have to credit Albion from a defensive point of view. And and that's not to say we're crediting the defence. I want to credit the whole team for the way that they that they defended, how how often they won the ball back, how they bounced back into shape when when we did lose the ball, how they didn't allow uh, Norwich any runners in behind, whether it was trying to pop it over the top for people like Adam Eder or whoever. They they didn't allow Norwich those the, those opportunities. We kept the ball really really well, which kept uh, kept Norwich pen, penned back. And these are things you can't take for granted against ten men, aren't they, Pete? They they're things that people will take for granted, but they shouldn't. Yeah, and coaches now consider attacking defensive or we or we connected and attacking well on its own isn't isn't good enough. You need to also be defense defensive defensively solid at the same time. So yeah, it's not just as easy as trying to break down ten men and and working out how you attack that. You also need to know how you're going to defend it in case you do lose the ball. And I think Shemi Ajayi coming on was interesting um, whether that was to help control any counter-attacks if, if Norwich did try and break through because he's obviously got a bit more pace um, partly that although Bartley, Bartley was on a yellow peak well there's that as well and if if you do need to stop a counter-attack by you know a foul um, you need that yellow card as well so 
Yeah, so I, I imagine um, bring, taking Bartley off and bringing in AM was part of the decision, decision for his pace and in case he didn't need to take a yellow card to, to stop a counter-attack. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Away days are great. There's nothing quite like playing at home especially with Albion's home record under Carlos Corbran. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximise your home ground advantage with McDelivery. You in? Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18+, plus. serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, we we mentioned there about the one moment that Norwich did manage to create. And I, I definitely, definitely want to dwell on that particular moment, Pete, because, I mean, it's a huge, huge moment in the game. It's absolutely, it's absolutely massive. Palmer's save because, I mean, I think if Norwich equalised in that moment, I think they probably go on to get a point because we were struggling to to break them down. Palmer made a save from an effort that had a post-shot expected goals of 0.43. I have to say, I don't think that necessarily gives it credit um, because the strength of hand Palmer has to get to that to turn it around the post is absolutely unbelievable. And it obviously comes off the back of us praising Alex Palmer after the Middlesbrough game where he was the one outstanding West Bromwich Albion player. He kept the score down. I mean, let's make absolutely no bones about that. So I thought, I wonder how many goals Alex Palmer has actually saved us in the last two matches. So I did the numbers, Pete, and Alex Palmer has had a 3.08 post-shot expected goals over the last two matches and only conceded once. I mean, that's absolutely phenomenal to be... I mean, it's only it's only a very small sample size. It's, it, it, it's two games, but to be over-performing your post-shot expected goals as a goalkeeper by two goals in just two games, I think is is absolutely superb and i think it, it i think it goes to show how important it is to have a really really good goalkeeper i always i remember during my time at the club that roy hodgson always used to talk about ben foster in glowing terms and say you know having having a having a top goalkeeper in the premier league was worth you know like 6 to 10 points i think was the number he used to put on it and but but obviously there's less games in the in the um uh, in the Premier League than there is in the Championship. I would say a good goalkeeper in this division is worth 10 to 12 points. And when you actually look back last season, <laughs> I know I know people chuckle and go, he's not, he's just not passing up an opportunity to have a go at David Button. And it's not that, but I just want to highlight a little bit. When David Button was in, it was in goal last season, against Blackburn, we conceded 0.4 XG, but conceded two goals. Against Huddersfield away, we conceded 0.9 xG, yet conceded two goals. Against Birmingham at home, we conceded 1.1 xG and conceded three goals. Against Swansea City, we conceded 1.1 xG, but con- uh, but conceded three goals as well. 
against Birmingham away, we conceded one XG and conceded two goals. And it just it just goes to show you that, you know, the amount of points that looking at the XG that we probably should have got from those games. I look at the Swansea game. We won the XG. The Birmingham game. We won. Uh, we won the XG. Um, the Huddersfield game. We won the XG by a mile. The Blackburn game. We won the XG. And this is this is why people last season were were were, were sort of joking. It, people who don't understand what what we're talking about when we talk about XG because they seem to they there seems to be this misnomer. When you talk about XG and you say we won the XG battle, that you you think somebody should be giving you a medal or giving you some points, and that's not what we're saying. What we're saying is, if you win the XG but lose the game, then you've done something fundamentally wrong somewhere, and it's normally at one of the two key ends of the field. You've either let in goals that you shouldn't have let in, or you haven't scored chances that you should have scored. That's that's effectively what we're saying. So that saying that we won the XG battle but lost the game is not bragging. It's saying we have got a fundamental problem that we've got to fix. And last season, that fundamental problem for quite a large portion of the season, which is which is why we kept highlighting the fact that, you know, we had this superiority in the XG, but we're losing games, was because David Button was letting too many shots past him. And then you look at what we're doing in recent weeks and and have got a really, really good goalkeeper who I think is getting better week on week because we we were, I'm not going to hide from the fact we were quite critical of Alex Palmer earlier on in the season. We said the goals at Blackburn, definitely one of them he should have stopped. We felt he should have stopped probably uh, both goals against Huddersfield. We, we we felt like Alex Palmer was making making some mistakes in some games. Touch wood when I, when I say this because I don't want to tempt fate on the guy, but those mistakes seem to have become fewer and further between Pete and I just think it what we're witnessing before our eyes is a guy growing up as a goalkeeper really you know, and and I know he's not he's not a kid but he is he is young in terms of experience at this level and I think what we're seeing particularly this season is a guy really really growing into his role as a key player in this side. I think he's a real leader in this side as well. I think he's, I you know, I don't know him personally, but the way he is on the pitch, the way the way he talks when he when he when he does things for the uh, for the Albion channels, the way the way he gets the um, dances in front of the fans and gets them boing boinging after a big win and stuff like that. It feels like he's very connected to the club. It feels like he's a he's a big personality. It feels like he gets it. And I think we're 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 seeing almost a boy become a man in terms of him, you know, him being almost a inexperienced goalkeeper growing into a truly experienced one. And as I say, I'm not doing this to dredge up David Button and have a pop at him. I'm sure people will think that I am, but the amount of points that Button lost us last season versus the amount of points that I think over the full season Alex Palmer will gain us. I think it's massive and that genuinely just that one position just having a goalkeeper who you can rely on to make saves at big moments in games think back to Leeds away I mean we would have lost that game were it not for Alex Palmer we we we're, we're probably you know we we're, we're a good few points up on where we otherwise would be if we had a less competent goalkeeper in between the sticks. And it's such a massive, massive position. And as I say, I go back to Roy Hodgson's quote that 
a good goalkeeper is worth X amount of points in a season. I would suggest 10 to 12 in the, in the championship. And, and that that's massive because if that's the difference between finishing on 65 points versus 75 points, then that's the difference between not finishing in the playoffs and finishing in the playoffs. Yeah, Palmer had a bit of a slow start in the season and letting some some goals that he probably shouldn't have. Thinking about the the near post ones against Blackburn and and Huddersfield, but over the last four or five games, I think he's really really grown into. Well, I mean, even before that, I'd say probably this the second half of games that we've already played this season. In a lot of those games, he's made some really big saves, and obviously the two recent ones stand out um, against. Uh, well, against Middlesbrough, he made a couple of really big saves, and against Norwich, the one save was yeah absolutely brilliant to keep that out. But one but, in the first half was a decent save as well, though, Pete. It's worth mentioning. Yeah, exactly. And um, I was going to say it's not something that's that's kind of a surprise. It seems to be whenever there's a really big save to make, Palmer just sums out somehow manages to get a fingertip to it and and tip it around the post. And it's really impressive what he's doing at the minute. Um, had he not had a bit of a a shaky start in terms of his shot stopping um, in the season, then I think he'd probably be up there with with one of the best in terms of um, uh, goals prevented numbers. Um, when you look at post-shot expected goals and, and compare that to actual goals conceded, um, but because of that that poor start, he's not he's not towards the top of that metric. But, I mean, all we have to hope is that given the second half of the season that he can perform, his shot stopping can be at the level that he's shown in the past five or six games rather than the, the first five or six games of the season. Absolutely. Long may it continue. I mean, I just want to just want to go backwards slightly, Pete. And we, we actually had um, somebody somebody tweet us uh, after the game and said, could we could we do the um, comparison that we did for Matt Phillips for John Swift? So that was our performance with or without um, in terms of points gained uh, with or without Swift. I obviously tweeted that person back and said, absolutely no problem. However, having looked at the data, it's not really the same sort of comparison um, because Swift has actually only missed, completely missed, i.e. played zero minutes in seven games under Carlos Corbran, four wins, two draws, one defeat. And I think when you've only missed seven games over such a long period of time, it's not really... It's it's not it's hard to actually measure the impact of him not being in the side. Whereas Matt Phillips has been out of the side, he he missed over twenty games. Um, it's it's a very different sort of comparison. However, because that person asked to sort of understand the impact of not having John Swift in the in the team, one thing that I did pick up on when I was researching that point is that the games which um which Swift doesn't um doesn't play in of the eight games where we've generated the least xg this season and bearing in mind john swift has only missed seven games john swift hasn't started four of them so borough away 0.3 rotherham away 0.5 plymouth at home 0.8 and blackburn um away 0.8 i don't think we can we can at this point in any way actually determine you know do we pick up less points with or without John Swift because I don't think he's missed enough games to deduce that but when four of our eight lowest xg games have come without John Swift I do think it's very reasonable Pete to say that 
when John Swift is in the side, we create a great... Sorry, when John Swift is not in the side, we create a great deal less. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, it's difficult to analyse because he's not missed that many games. Um, quite interesting, if you look at the team's um, expected goal difference from when Swift is on the pitch compared to when he's off the pitch, it's actually negative, which shows that we've been creating chances. Well, our, our general performance has been been worse look, than with Swift on the pitch looking at this metric, but you have to caveat that with the fact that he's not been, he's not missed much, and a lot of the time that he probably hasn't been on the pitches if to, if he's been taken off after we've taken a lead, so we're not too bothered about um, creating too many more chances. So, it, like you said before, it's it's really difficult to analyse his impact on the team um, when you look at it in a, a way of when he's on the pitch compared to when he's not on the pitch because he just hasn't spent that much time off the pitch to see how we actually perform. And also, um, some of the, a lot of the games that he missed is uh, are games that you would consider to be some of the more winnable ones. Now, whether that's Plymouth at home, QPR at home, Coventry, who at the time were down in twenty first, um, Stoke, and uh, and Rotherham. Um, the these are these are games that um, that John Swift uh, didn't uh, didn't start and. That that you know sometimes it when when you've got such a small sample size because he's not missing the because he it, because it because he's not missing the big games he's missing the ones where you'd expect us to pick up points with or without him then it's going to look like we're performing better without him than we actually are whereas in actual fact the reality is we're probably just playing weak opposition when John Swift's not there yeah and that's kind of the the opposition kind of level is what you'd expect to balance out over a bigger sample size as well because a small sample size it might be the case that it's just a, a group of teams that were played against that are weaker or or the other way um you know over a bigger sample size you want to have a, a bit more of a, a level a level kind of opposition um ability so it's easier to compare um and it's just more reliable when you've got a bigger sample size so yeah like we said it's really difficult to actually kind of put any kind of numbers to it um i think just watching him and, and seeing his general performance it's it's hard to say anything other than we're a better team when he's actually fitting in the side um because a lot of the time he's on the pitch everything in the attacking third goes through him and i think i'm right in saying he's our second highest goal scorer this season and he's just been really really effective when he's efficient when he's had chances um putting away shots that he probably shouldn't be scoring from um, and he's just been really effective and yeah, one of our best players, I think. So even though you can't really put a number on it, I don't think anyone can really argue with the fact that he's been, he's been very, very good when we've had him and we've missed him when we've, when we've not had him. Absolutely. I, I don't think, I don't think anybody can, can debate that for a, for a second that John Swift has, has had a really, really good season and been just a massively, massively important player for us uh, up, up to this, uh, up to this point, to be honest, Pete. And, you know, he's just, he's just playing really, really well. And, and, and I think, 
we are a better side when when he's when he's in the team. Obviously, as you say, he is our second top scorer, and we will come to talk about the man who is outright our top scorer in just a moment. But before we do, I, I just want to just want to take take a, a moment. If this was if this was X, it would be um, I, I, the, the words would be written Alex Mowat appreciation post because I just want to take a little bit of a moment to appreciate Alex Mowat, and uh, I'm, I know everybody does. I think I don't I don't think I'm telling people anything that they don't know uh, in the telling them that Alex Mowat is having an absolutely fantastic season but I just want to emphasize how good he was against Norwich just purely in terms of pass completion numbers Pete he played 80 forward zone passes which um, according to FOTMOB which is almost double the next highest number so he was playing a lot of uh, passes into attacking areas and yet completed 94.3% of his passes. He completed seven out of eight long passes. I mean, the guy is just an absolute machine at the moment. And every, and I feel like he's he's almost being this good. I mean, not completely under the radar, because people are very, very aware of how well Alex Moa is playing. But when the conversation comes at the end of the game about who's had a good game, who's going to win Man of the Match, the votes go up on, on social media and whatever. Alex Mowat's not always in them. And yet, when you go to the numbers, Pete, and you look at who's playing attacking passes, who's completing passes, who's being dangerous with their with their passing, Alex Mowat's at the heart of absolutely everything we do at the moment, isn't he? Yeah, but he's just, it's like a metronome, just setting the tempo for everything. And it's very rare that you see him misplace a pass. Um He's just terrific at just moving the ball around and moving it into good areas as well. He's not just passing it around the um, around the, the centre backs and just sideways passing, backwards passing. Obviously, some of that's involved, and it it has to be when he's um, he's completing. I don't know. I think it was over a hundred passes against um, Norwich and, and other games. It's very high as well. So they they can't always be forward passes, but there is a good proportion of passes that go into the final third that are progressive that go into the box so and with those passes he still completes them at an extremely high rate so it's just really impressive the way that he can keep the ball moving and be be so vital in what we do when we've got the ball but also be so accurate with his passes and and very rarely give the ball away and it's it's not the only part of his game that that's really impressive as well he's obviously good without the ball and I think particularly against Middlesbrough I know we've already talked about the Middlesbrough game, but he seems to just make so many vital tackles um, in the middle, and it's quite often you see him pressing high and winning the ball back off for opposition players in their own half, and then we can go create chances from there. So it's not just his ability on the ball, but it's also what he does for us off the ball. 29 before the end of the season, Pete, but nonetheless, and obviously that is that's always an age where you have to wonder about the next deal that you that you give a player because obviously the ne- the next deal takes them over that um that sort of tipping point number of bit of them being 30 years old and as soon as a player turns 30 it, you it, you see you see them their their value in terms of having any value in the transfer market start to take a hit but that being said assuming of course and obviously this is entirely reliant on a takeover happening because at the moment we haven't got the money to do much of anything at all, to be honest. But if a takeover can, can happen, I imagine one of your first pieces of business, obviously alongside sorting out a new contract for Kipre, would be sort out a new contract for Moa, wouldn't it? 
well, both Kipre and Mo have probably been our two best performers this season. So I think the two players that you've got to straight away consider, can we offer them a new contract and what can we offer them? Um, and I imagine we probably will need a new owner to, to be able to consider that. So hopefully we can get one in before the end of the season because if we were to lose them both on a free, then there'd be two huge losses and both would be very difficult to replace and we haven't got a like for like replacement anywhere in the squad at the minute that could come in and, and fill their spots. So um I imagine Corbran is is definitely hoping that a takeover can come through so that we can well, hopefully we can have a few bit more bit more money in the bank and a bit more leeway in offering out contracts and the other thing about the two of them is they've they've been in the squad for a while, so they're probably decent earners. It's not like they've both come through the youth academy and are cheap to, to offer contracts to, so that is where we need need a bit more backing financially to to be able to commit to, to long term contracts on, on probably decent championship wages. I just want to finish off today, Pete, talking about the goal scorer, Brandon Thomas Asante. Now, I think it's important that we talk about Brandon because he he's come in for quite a bit of stick. This week, after after the performance against Middlesbrough, you were you, you were very vocal in your defence of him after that game. I think I was less so, and I'm I'm happy to admit that. I, I, I whilst I didn't go out of my way to criticise him, I felt that some of the things he had done in that game were, I think, naive is the word. I uh, I, I I felt like some of the, some of the things that broke down with him, it was unnecessary that that it broke down with him. But I have to say, there's becoming a real realization for me, and this is probably to, you're probably sitting there feeling like the the last horse has finally crossed the finishing post on on this one because this 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 has probably dawned on on you for quite some time, Pete. But that you know, people can criticize Brandon all all, all they want, yet. He keeps popping up with goals, doesn't he? I mean, it was it was a smart finish to just you know brilliant, brilliant leap by Grady from a great cross by Jed Wallace. But Brandon's still got to get there in front of the goalkeeper because that ball does not go into the back of the net if Brandon doesn't touch it home. And it, it's just really, really good striker play to just get across the front of the, the the keeper and and stab it into the net and win us the game. And that means that Brandon now is on seven goals from 7.4 XG. He's averaging a goal every 2.790s, which is not phenomenal, but it's not it's not terrible either. And I just want to put into put it into perspective. That's seven championship goals for Brandon Thomas Asante. Let me give you some of the names that he is in and around in the championship goal scoring chart. He's two less than Joel Perot. He is one less than Connor Chaplin and Steffi Mavadidi and one less than Nathan Broadhead. He's on the same goals as Kin and Dewsbury Hall, who, who, despite being a midfielder, has been lauded as one of the players of the season. Jay Stansfield at Birmingham, who people are say, uh, jumping up and down about, saying what a fantastic player he looks. Um, he's got more goals than George Hurst, who people are saying what a great signing that was by Ipswich. More goals than Jaden Philogene, who... Again, people are saying what a great season he's having. More goals than Liam Delap uh, up front for Hull City. I mean, Brandon has been getting a lot of criticism. But a lot of people have been saying he's not at this level. He's, you know, he, he's, he's, he, he's a guy that's struggling to make the step up and all these sorts of things. I don't know, Pete. I, I, I mean... Purely in terms of goals, in terms of contributions that he's making to the, uh, to the team. Well, 
some of the names that he's in and around on the on the goal scorers list would suggest that he's absolutely of this level that he is that he's doing the job that's required of him and he's scoring goals and in the end and I know we've been here before with with Carl and Grant and you can't judge everything purely on goals but I mean if it, I'm, I'm not having comparing apples and oranges to comparing Brandon Thomas Asante to Carl and Grant because as we as we said numerous times during the season where Carl and Grant scored 17 goals that if Carlin Grant didn't score. He didn't do anything in games. It it was that it was that simple. Carlin Grant either scored a goal or he was a passenger in a football match. And that cannot be said of Brandon Thomas Asante. He works extremely hard. His dribbling numbers are, uh, are decent. He carries the ball well. He uh, he occupies centre halves, and he's knocking in enough goals. And the thing that people have been, people have said about Brandon Thomas Asante, oh, he works hard, but his finishing is rubbish. Well. It's not rubbish. He's basically scoring his XG and he is in and around some very, very good players in the championship goal scorer charts. I mean, whilst, yes, we we can absolutely question Brandon and at times some of his performances do look below par. I mean, if you've got a if you've got a guy popping up better than every three games and, and scoring you a goal, a lot of them quite important. Uh, how how vociferously can you be critical of them, Pete? Yeah, like I said, I think he's doing this very a very good job. Um, as what is in fairness, probably our third choice striker, and he's keeping us ticking along whilst the the other two strikers are out injured. And I don't think we can really have too many complaints about it. You know, every game, you know, he's going to work hard, and he's been available for every single game, and quite often has to go through ninety minutes of of making runs in behind that you don't always see because he doesn't get the ball and and putting in a lot of work off the ball. And he's also getting on the score sheet a bit as well. The fact that he's scoring level with his expected goals shows that his finishing hasn't been poor over the course of the season. It's been as you'd expect it to. I think the only criticism you can have in terms of goal scoring is he's not getting as many chances as he wasn't as he was last season. Um, his expected goals per 90 is is a fair bit lower than it was last season, so he's not getting as many chances. Um, but the chances he is getting, he's finishing at a decent rate. So I don't understand the criticism about finishing. Um, I always think that maybe finishing is perceived to be easier than it actually is, and a lot of people wouldn't, if they saw a striker performing at their their expected goals, um, a lot of people think that they'd be finishing quite poorly and should be scoring, I don't know, a few more goals, two or three more goals each game. Um, or a goal each, more each game, whatever, but they should be scoring more than they have. Um, when in reality, they shouldn't because I mean, ex- expected goals is derived from hundreds of thousands of shots. There's the, there's a great video, Pete, where, um, which Roma did, uh, uh, where one of their fans commented on, um, on social media after I can't remember which of their players it was, uh, missed a chance where the ball was slid across the box and, uh, and the guy fired in the shot and it, um, and it didn't go in the back of the net. And the fan commented saying, even I would have scored that. So Roma invited him down to the ground and recreated the, opportunity put the ball across to him and gave him three opportunities to score and he missed every single time and I th- and I feel like that's what we're talking about here really yeah and I think even I think quite often you hear yeah even I would have scored that or even whoever would have scored that probably quite often as a joke but with a, a tinge of seriousness to it and like I said I think goal 
uh, players scoring at, at their expected goals level generally get considered to be not performing well enough and should be scoring more goals. But the whole expected goals model is derived from hundreds of thousands of shots so that and is taken, it's basically the number of expected goals for each shot is shots in the past that have been taken from similar situations, what percentage of them have scored, um, have been scored from. So it's it's so much data behind it and yeah, there's just so much that goes into it that is it's actually a very good predictive model for that, um, for goal scoring. So I know a lot of people don't like it, um, but it's a good way to, to analyse how good a chance it is um, and if a, a striker's performing at, at that level of their expected goals and, you know, they're finishing at a, a decent rate, at an average rate, and I don't think you can have too, too many complaints about um, that player's finishing. As I said, I think the only questions you can have about Brandon Thomas Santi's goal scoring is does he get enough chances each game um, and obviously that comes down to him making the right runs the right movement and sniffing out those chances but it also comes down to the players that he's playing with are they doing enough to help him create those chances and the only other question we have to have around Brandon Thomas Asante is will will we still have him come next month because we're still uh, at that time of recording at uh, five o'clock on the on the twenty seventh of December waiting to hear what uh, Ghana's final squad is for the African Cup of Nations. We have heard earlier today that Grady Dean Ghana is confirmed in the Congo squad, so he he will be absent for at least a few a couple of weeks uh, for Albion possibly more depending on on how they go in the tournament but uh, and I think we can safely assume that Shemi Ajayi will go away with Nigeria as well because he's a pretty regular part of their their international squad but we sit and we wait um probably slightly nervously to see whether we lose Brandon Thomas Asante as well of course be delighted for him fulfilling his his international ambitions but from a purely selfish club point of view it's obviously a blow to lose the one fully fit striker that that we've got at the moment so uh, as i say we we face a little bit of a nervous wait to find that out That'll be all from us to, for today. A slightly shorter pod, not by much, but slightly shorter pod today. Not least because we are trying to rattle one of these out after every game of the Christmas period, which means we will be back after the Leeds United game um, on Friday. We, we obviously won't get it recorded on Friday. 8.15 kickoff is horribly late especially for those of us having to come back from the from the game so I won't be won't be home much of anything before 11 p.m. so I don't think I don't think Pete and I will be bleary-eyed jumping on the jumping onto Zoom to record a podcast then so it will be it will no doubt be the next day that we will we will record that one but we will bring you a podcast after the Leeds United game let's hope we can be as positive after that game as we have been after the victory over Norwich City. But until then, thanks for listening and up the baggies. Albion have certainly been sharing the goals around this season. They're well into double figures now for different championship goal scorers. So why not take a leaf out of their book? and do some sharing of your own with a McNugget share box. Order McDelivery now on the McDonald's app. You in? At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com.
And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable! Look, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely and control vehicle at all times. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.